Okay, hi Alex and thank you for accepting this invite and welcome to the Women IT Pros podcast. It's really great to have you here. We have had a few discussions before this opportunity, so we're really excited to, um, to speak with you. So let's start from the beginning and you haven't really followed the, the conventional uh, career path, let's say. You did finish high school, however, you didn't follow the university track and only after that you went for work so can you just share a little bit with us how how your career came along and how did actually work for you sure well hello and thank you so much for having me it's great to be here after such a good lineup of speakers and learning so much from the podcast and the sessions previously i feel really honored to have even been considered so thank you for that um about the career path itself so i always say i accidentally ended up in tech and a lot of it had to do with the fact that I used to have a part-time job in high school where I worked in a call center after in the afternoons and sometimes during the weekends as well. Um, I went to a French school for high school and studied foreign languages. And I was leveraging, if you like, those skills and monetizing them from a very <laughs> early time. And being... In, in that sort of environment, you tend to learn that actually progress uh, can happen really, really quickly for people and you can get transferred from a project to another and you can end up being aligned to a big company. And perhaps from there, there is an opportunity to, to transfer in that big company and start, start to roll there. Um, the reason I didn't pursue university was because at you know age 19, First of all, I was really struggling with what was it that I wanted to do, and it was very hard to define and put my finger down and say, this is my goal and this is where I want to be in 10 years. I feel like at that age, that's the hardest question to answer, even where you want to be in two years. I mean, you have some vague ideas about the fact that you might want to travel, discover the world. That, that was definitely my case, but it was very hard to put my finger down and be like, yeah, I want to be a doctor. I just... I just wasn't that person. Um, so I went through a few things. I tried uh, for the Secret Services Academy <laughs> um, and gave up like halfway through the process when I understood that it would be about three years of army before you do any of the cool stuff. And I said, I, definitely not a, a fit for my personality. I considered some other stuff, but I ended up leaving Romania where I grew up and moving to Budapest and uh, got a call center job there. And really from that point onwards, um, I was lucky that company was acquired by Oracle and I, you know, I worked hard, but it was easier at the time to get promoted quite quickly as well. So within the first two years, I ended up managing my own teams and it really helped me from there to, you know, accelerate my career path and get into Microsoft as well. So that's very interesting. So looking back, would you still have followed that career path or would you have done things slightly different today? I personally wouldn't change anything because it definitely gave me, you know, one step forward in terms of where I am at this point in my life and doing it earlier perhaps than other people have the opportunity mm -hmm. to if you end up going to three or four years of university and perhaps having to pay back some of the student loans obviously I didn't have 
any of that. So I started um, earning a salary fairly young, being able to to save again much earlier in life than, than other people have the opportunity to. But I think it's important to kind of weigh what what do you want to do versus the return of investment if you are going to pursue higher education and what you might get out of it. If you are in a place in your life where you are fairly certain that you want one of the careers that requires a, a lengthy time of studying, like you want to be a lawyer slash solicitor here in the mm-hmm. UK or like my partner, you know, you want to go into aviation and you want to become a pilot, there is an understanding that that will require an investment to get you there, but it's the sort of career you do for life, right? Where I think where we are, and especially if you are in the free spirit bucket and you you want to have the flexibility in life to adapt to whatever country you want to live into, um, pursuing different career paths, depending on your interests and passions. I feel like that's when you really need to take some time, sit down, think for yourself, like, is taking these four years and investing this money going to really help me get Mm -hmm. into whatever it is I'm passionate about at this point in my life? It's quite interesting because even I look back to my experience in Portugal, and unfortunately, I don't see that Portugal at least and maybe other European countries give you an opportunity unless you go for the university track which is quite I think in the UK is slightly different and Mm -hmm. is more open around that but um, I don't know I think as well UK as uh, as a country has evolved significantly throughout the past years do you feel that today uh, in 2021 would you still be able to be as successful as you are today without doing that university check? I feel like there are two elements to that. So in general, organizations and especially in tech are quite inclusive of people's backgrounds and they aren't necessarily going to penalize you if you don't have a specialized degree. Now, obviously, if you go into software engineering or perhaps some of the more uh, technically advanced roles, they will require a track record where you can demonstrate that you have the skills and perhaps still ask you to take the specialized courses and training to get you there. So I don't think it's the same size fits all for every single role. Mm -hmm. And there still are, you know, especially the culture, I see how different it is from the UK to the US, where in the US they still appreciate very much the Ivy League degrees that people would have invested huge amounts of money in. Um, I still think it is possible to be successful, to have a successful career in tech without having a specialized degree or or a university degree in general. However, you do need to replace it with equivalent experience. An equivalent experience might mean, you know, some companies think you need to have at least five years before they put you in a, in a same mid-sized career role or 10. It, each one um, weighs it differently. So it's good to have that conversation early and also think about, you know, do I have the relevant experience to go into the next step that I that I care about? I must admit, sometimes I do get nervous when people ask um, where I went to university because it's such a natural question. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there, there were other reasons why I didn't pursue that path, like, you know, the financial strain on my family and not even with a scholarship, not being able to take the time to dedicate it to studying when I had to be earning money to support them. Mm-hmm. And that's not a conversation you feel very comfortable sharing the first time you meet someone. So I still get nervous about it, but I'm also very 
proud and confident in my ability to to do my my job without having that qualification. Thank you, Alex. I definitely think that you should be proud. And uh, thank you so much for sharing a bit more about yourself, about how you started the journey. I, I think it's going to be a very interesting conversation. And um, my question is related to something that you already mentioned. So you said something that like we need to have a certain level of experience before moving to the next uh, role, let's say. And I'm sure you change quite a few roles throughout uh, your career. So can you tell us more about what was your biggest inspiration to get where you are today? Oh, that's definitely a hard question. I was thinking about like how I might answer something like this, because when I started off, I, I can't say I had anyone as inspiration because it wasn't necessarily something that I've seen done anywhere else. I didn't really know many people, um, especially for school and stuff that would have moved abroad, would have had different careers there. So there was no one to kind of ask questions from or figure out what their path looked like. But as I moved to different countries and started building a network, you know, all of the sudden it does become easier to get a, a clearer picture of what you want to do in the future. And one of the important things to do at that stage is, you know, look out for people that do inspire you or have roles that you find really attractive and go start a conversation early. In some circumstances, you know, I found a job I really liked in New York and I just reached out to speak to some of the team there and at that stage in my career, I was eight months into the role I was currently in, and I thought there was no chance they would even consider me. I thought that was an option for like three, four years down the line. But because you go and have those conversations and you get an opportunity to meet the people, see what they might expect, and, you know, if you really have um, a strong connection, I guess, with the team, for me, the opportunity ended up being possible at the time, which I, I would have never thought that is the case. So it might be hard if you don't come from a background where you have a really good network growing up and perhaps you don't even end up working in the same country where you were born. So, you know, even the connections you have might not might not be there long term. But I think it changes throughout different cycles of your life and career and you find different people that inspire you and it helps kind of figuring out what, what you might do next. That, that's great. I think um, you're right uh, that just going there and uh, like speaking up or trying just to meet with, with people really brings a lot because you never know who you, you're going to meet and also what you will get out from that conversation. Um, another story is like the comfort zone and are you going to really go there or not uh, but it's yeah not. yeah and i mean there is i think in life one thing that you need to learn to accept very quickly is that for every yes answer there will be thousands of no's and it happens so many times where you know you experience rejection and of course for your brain regardless how accustomed to it you might be it's still a painful emotion to go through uh, process and move on from without any sort of impact on your confidence level or your ability to put yourself forward for different opportunities. Also, as women, we aren't particularly taught during our uh, early years of life that this is 
you know, a, a, a way to operate in order to be successful at, at what you do, regardless of what that is, or we aren't necessarily pitched at this sort of professional environment, positions of leadership would be something that we can expect in the future, and we aren't necessarily prepared for it either. So I think it's, you know, it's a skill to continuously develop and where you, you build thicker skin, understanding that actually it has nothing to do with you if people reject you from a role or don't get back to you when you reach out to speak to someone about the position you're really interested in. You know, it still happens to me today that I get rejected or people don't get back to me when I want to initiate conversations and it's perfectly normal. They have all sorts of reasons why they might not be available at the time. Also, there are all sorts of reasons why I might not be the right person at the time, but it doesn't mean it has to stay like that forever. Great. So what I took from, from you so far is that um, uh, we should always go and uh, expand the network and try to talk to people. And also, if we get a no or if things do not turn out as we like, it's not the end of the world. We should learn how to, to go over that. Is there any other advice for career progression that you would like to give us or anyone else? I mean, you really have to sometimes, you know, think that things will never happen at the right time. So I always thought that I would be planning whatever I want to do next. And I would take, you know, two, three years to like build my skills for that upcoming role, like transitioning, for example, from tech to sales. I had this vision in mind that I would wait for a fiscal year to finish. Every, all the planets will align, you know, all of this stuff happens. And it's never like that, never, ever when I made a move, especially from, you know, say support to technical sales, from technical sales to pure sales. It never happened at the, in a specific timeline. The opportunities just come up and you need to sometimes realize that you might need to sacrifice something in order to get what you want next. So for me, it might have meant sacrificing my chance at getting a promotion by starting under a new line manager from scratch you know, building up that that impact that I have to talk about. Same with moving countries. Again, you might have an idea in mind of when that might be the right time to do in your life for various reasons, but it will happen that the opportunity comes along and you really need to be prepared to say, okay, how much am I willing to disrupt my life or sacrifice what's going on in order to get to that next step? So I guess just be prepared for the unexpected and sometimes things just happen much earlier than you think or, you know, at, in a timeline that doesn't particularly fit the way you would have wanted things to be and, and be prepared to take some, some risks and get a bit disruptive. <laughs> it's quite interesting. Um, before um, you mentioned about how women aren't necessarily taught to fit in this environment mm -hmm. and and you mentioned as well promotions and career progression and these conversations overall are a bit awkward to have but even more awkward as a woman saying i want a promotion i want a, a salary increase so mm -hmm. throughout the 12 years um, that you've been working for you've had these conversations quite often so what would you advise women overall so that they are more comfortable with these conversations and put themselves forward and um, and ask for those promotions, those salary increases as well. I think there are different elements to this. So in the beginning of my career, I used to be 
completely shy, didn't feel comfortable um, reaching out to people in what I perceived to be positions of authority and ask anything of them. I constantly felt like under huge scrutiny. You know, I was always thinking I'm not deserving of progression or salary increases or stuff like that. And also coming from quite a financially challenging background, let's call it this way, you know, the first salary I ever got felt like I won the lottery. So I already felt like I was being rewarded above any kind of expectation that I possibly had. So even, you know, outgrowing that and getting that sense of actually I am worthy of this kind of compensation and it's normal for me to expect to make progress. And it's normal for me to feel like I need to be paid what the, you know, the industry average is for for a role like that with my years of experience is is um, is absolutely normal and you need to become comfortable having those expectations for your life because you deserve it definitely um, getting to a point where you you have that conversation so you need to put yourself in different shoes right say you are a manager of a team wouldn't you want for that team to be successful if you we're managing women, wouldn't you want them to be paid equally as their male counterparts or to know how to make progress? Or if perhaps they don't feel comfortable having that conversation, you know, you would want to be the sort of person that coaches them to, to get there, to be more proactive in managing their career or suggesting perhaps a mentor or someone in your own network that could help them grow or someone who could sponsor them becoming a leader later on down the line. Now, not every single hiring manager would be like that, and it happens, although obviously everyone wants them wants them to really be accountable for the growth of, of their teams. But this is their job at the end of the day, right? So reaching out and saying, look, I believe that it's time for me to move to the next step. Um, it, it would be great if we could set some clear goals that would help me get there. Like I usually, you know, where we work at Microsoft, there is this expectation of operating at two levels higher. That can be very vague for some roles. So being able to align some actual KPIs saying, okay, what would you expect of me to do in order for you to feel comfortable to put my case forward to your leadership team so they give me a promotion. Having that conversation early in a fiscal year is good, and then you can set your own timeline and you need to be proactive and responsible for that to make sure that you know you are performing above those expectations or if something isn't going well, to ask your manager, okay, can we do something differently where perhaps I can take on to another extra project or help someone else in the team? So I can really get all of the things that need to happen in order for me to get there. So just break it down into individual goals rather than think like this is a big thing where, you know, about three months before our performance reviews, you just go and be like, oh, do you think I might get a promotion today? Like think about, you know, how do you actually take things in your own hands, make it an actionable plan and hold hold that manager accountable. Um, also speaking to people again in your network. So nowadays organizations are much more transparent around promotions where you can see who's been promoted in the past few years or they announce it or they congratulate people. Now, each case is individual, but there's no shame in reaching out to some of those and be like, hey, did you do anything proactively to get yourself there? Like, you know, was there anything that you spoke to your manager about that worked really well? Or did you network perhaps at a higher level to the skip line 
manager? What what did you do? And learning from that and adapting it to to your own needs for your career as well. Hopefully that answers the question. I think it's very useful information. I think the breaking the the goal into small small goals it will help people being more proactive towards uh their their desire of being promoted because as you mentioned like it's very vague oh i want to be promoted but you can be promoted doing so many different things so it's very good to to open that game and just say to the manager i want to be promoted what kind of things do we need to do and still talking about promotions and this is a very american thing how do we get to a six-figure salary of course well you know what it i think from my perspective, everyone deserves a six-figure salary. Perhaps, yeah, of course, in the beginning of your career, it's very hard to go in and say, hey, pay me hundreds of thousands of pounds or dollars or any other currency. However, you know, as you progress for your career, it's absolutely normal to chase that goal because if you look at the expenses of our lives today, things like buying your first home, you know, being able to live a comfortable lifestyle. Say you want to start a family in the future. By the time you paid off your student loans, you'll have a house deposit that you saved for. If you don't have support from your family to do all of this, it's quite expensive and hard to, to get to a comfortable place. So getting there, there I went for an unconventional method, to be honest. I moved to the US <laughs> where um, salaries are much, much higher than Europe overall. I'm not sure how it compares to um, Asia, for example, but I know, you know, Singapore is another good option from my experiences and the conversations I've had in my network to explore this. But making a country move and if you like starting a career elsewhere puts you in that position. Another thing is to say you're blocked in your promotion path by numerous things that are outside of your control, aka organizational changes, your manager goes off on long-term sick leave, um, there is no budget for that a year for everyone, all of these things have happened to me and I know they can happen and again it's nothing that you could have done differently to change that then perhaps switching to a different kind of role that has a compensation uh, balance that is a bit different. So say when I was in support, I was only compensated for the work that I was doing and there was no other incentive aligned to my role. But as I moved into technical sales, a part of my compensation became this uh, revenue-based incentive where if my team was doing well, then I would also get a percentage of those earnings, which is great because then your compensation grows without you necessarily having to do anything special to change your base salary. Of course, now moving into sales as well, again, things are quite dramatic. Like now my base pay is just 60% of my overall pay and the other 40% is, is based on my target. But again, you have the opportunity to overachieve on that. There are accelerators and other things that can happen to, to really put your pay package very <laughs> to a very high bracket. Um, it's not going to happen every year, and it is a more volatile kind of compensation where you can never say, right, it's going to be this much every single year. But again, at least you have a goal and something to drive towards, and it's very motivating to, to go and do that. So there are different methods. It's not just about getting promotions. Another thing to note is that, you know, loyalty is a penalty, and it hurts saying this for someone who 
has been at Microsoft almost 10 years, but it is true. You know, if you go and look at the market average in compensation uh, on resources like Levels.fy or uh, Glassdoor, and you look at how people that come in roles similar to yours in the same country are compensated, you're going to notice very quickly that there might be, you know, quite a big percentage gap in terms of what you're paid today versus what a person who's just joining in that role today will be paid. And this widens throughout the years unless you're able to keep a quite accelerated promotion pace, which becomes harder as you grow in levels in every single company. So that is something that you need to be very aware of and you need to establish a comfort level that is good for you. So what might work out for you as a person and what feels comfortable might not for for someone different who will say you know what this is not right for me and I'm actually happy to move companies even though I really like it here it's more important for me to reach my financial goals sooner and you see people doing that right in a lot of big big companies all the time love the honesty I love the honesty (laughs) it's true though it's true you know it's like the same with bills where if you stay with the same internet provider or with the same insurer for for over a year, it will cost you more than it costs bringing a new customer um, and signing up for for their package. So I I don't see any shame in getting those insights, understanding that and establishing for yourself, do I feel comfortable being compensated 30% less or do I actually want to do something different about it? I think this is really, really, I mean, good tip. I mean, I personally find myself that I'm not even like looking at these things. Now, when you mention a couple of points, like being aware of what's happening around me, what other people do, I think maybe that's one of the common problems. We are just not aware of that these things are there and we should just go and see and be much more conscious about what we are doing and how that position us on the market. So thanks a lot, Alex. <laughs> I'm definitely going to use some of these tips. And I think combined with what you said even before, like having the goal, like we have a six figures goal and uh, moving forward, it, it's going to work out, right? It it has to, right? I think it's not even a matter of you know, just you wanting it. It's like looking at everything else that is happening in our lives, especially if you come from a background that wasn't so financially secure. Like my story was definitely di- driven a lot from this angle. And that's why I was racing so fast towards having financial security, you know, especially as later on in life, family doesn't look the same for everyone it might not mean like you're having a child but it might mean you have to look after elderly relatives or there are other things going on or you know you might in my case for the pandemic i had to financially cover my partner as well because as a pilot like you can see there's nowhere to to go and these things are unpredictable and i think you, you know you need to take in the bigger picture and sometimes that acts as a bigger motivator especially if you as a person have a bit of a an issue putting yourself forward and thinking that you deserve to have all of these things and perhaps it's too early in your life and all of this stuff you know use whatever else is happening in your life and your environment as a good catalyst to put to put yourself forward in that position and never feel like and this has happened to me i would feel so bad because i would love my manager and my team and i would think i'm betraying them by moving somewhere different and it's too soon in my career and it's too soon in my role and all of this stuff 
you know, when the company has to reorganize and make people redundant, I'm sure there is a lot of time spent feeling very sorry for those individuals. But in reality, they make decisions that will impact you very quickly without, you know, <laughs> facilitating for the needs of your life. So it's same for you. You really need to think about you don't you know, unless you own the company and you have a huge stake in the way it operates, you you need to put your needs first. Agreed, agreed. <laughs> so there is one more thing that might in, in your particular story helped or accelerate. I'm not sure. I'm looking forward to learn. But it's very common for young people, I think all three of us even in this call, is to move countries, to move from country of origin in order to um, promote career, to change job, to seek love or something else. Mm -hmm. But um, in your case, I'm not even sure in how many countries you, you lived or changed. So that would be good to start with, uh, to, to, to learn. And then also, how much did this help you with your journey and how do you feel about changing and living in many different countries? Sure. Um, so I'll start with this. I grew up in Romania, in Transylvania. And when you think about the professional world I live in today, which is inclusive, diverse, very dynamic, that was exactly the opposite. Everyone is white. There is definitely a lot of, um, not even racism, but, you know, all sorts of arguments going on, even with the people from different backgrounds living in the same country forever. So there, there are issues between Romanians and Hungarians or Romanians or people from German background that have, um, you know, moved to Romania like hundreds of years ago and stuff like that. So everyone has an issue with everyone is pretty much the premise of, you know, no one is as good as you. And going from a culture like that to understanding that actually if you want to make progress in life I perhaps need to be in a different environment because it's also very sexist I forgot to mention that um it was important for me to go and experience different things I always felt this need that I want to discover the rest of the world and see what else I can find there um the first one I did was to move to Greece for a long summer and you know that was in between uh before my final year of school in Romania and I went and just worked as a waitress and a bartender and hopped onto different islands to do that and it helped me meet loads of people from different countries like hear their stories understand their backgrounds and figure out like okay what what is it that attracts me to this like what is it that I like and it was always this ability to start fresh to be in a different country speak a different language all the time especially if it's not your maiden language um, getting used to like operate your entire lifestyle in, in a very different format is really good for your brain and your development, regardless of which stage you find yourself in life. And then, you know, you can adapt to different cultures as well. And all of a sudden your brain gets used to incorporating perspectives and views that come from many different backgrounds and places of the world. So that was my first experience like that with a working uh, lifestyle elsewhere. And then I moved to Budapest. And again, like the call center community, there is usually full of expats. And you hear people's different stories and backgrounds and hear all of these languages around you. And it, again, it helps you figure out like perhaps there's something else you want to learn or somewhere else you want to go and explore and experience. Um, that, that's also the first time where you might experience some some judgment towards your own background like for example in Hungary Romanians are perceived 
quite badly because there is a huge community that go and find work there and better paid opportunities. But especially my kind of Romanian that was from Transylvania and didn't speak a word of Hungarian, which they would expect from you, is even worse. So, you know, again, like seeing that you might become successful and get jobs where other people who had lived in that country perhaps have waited for their entire career and you go and snatch that opportunity from them doesn't necessarily generate the best reaction. So it's also interesting to deal with the backlash of you being the foreigner moving somewhere else. Um, I also moved to the UK and spent the first time, I spent the first six years there. And then I made a move to US, to New York uh, for two, almost two years and then moved back to the UK now. I think, uh, yeah. I managed to do quite a few places. If I'm honest, I also would have wanted to live in Asia for a bit. You never say never, but it, it just like, especially with where the world is at the moment, I don't think it's it's gonna happen. <laughs> wow, that's quite impressive. And I like that you still got back to UK. So it tells me that maybe this is a place for you. But like you said, we never know. Maybe we see you in Asia soon. There are loads of things that contribute towards like where you might decide to establish yourself longer term. And, you know, you need to sit and sometimes you need to go and experience a different place to realize which one you actually like the most or which one is very unlikely that you'll go back to. Which for me, for example, when I thought about would I ever return to work and live in Romania, I know that is not going to happen because it's not the right place for me, my personality and my lifestyle. Um, you know, there are so many other factors for other people. If you think about even the LGBTQ community and how some countries are more inclusive, fair and friendly towards this community and others, you, there is risk to your life by being there. So, you know, you, I even saw this in Romania to a certain extent where so many of the people that I know from this particular community have to live abroad because their rights in Romania are still not identified as equal and they are not respected and and just so many people aren't even friendly towards them, which is totally unfair. So I think there are many contributing factors towards where you decide to live longer term. For me, it also had to do with the financial management of things. Again, when you put things into a bigger perspective, I'm moving into the next stage of my life now where I'm thinking, OK, I might want to start a family in the future and I'm preparing for that, taking all the measures. And for that, you do kind of need a stable place and a bit of planning. And it's not easy to do if you continue to move countries every two, three years. That, that's a very good point, because that's also what I was wondering, like when you move the countries, it's kind of challenging. First of all, just moving the country is a challenge by itself. It sounds easy. Oh, I moved to New York, then I got back here. But in reality, there's so many different things you probably needed to take care of. So if you have any advice on how to prepare yourself from moving to country, that would be uh, good to, to understand. And also what you mentioned just now is like thinking from a different perspective, again, being a woman, thinking about the family, thinking about where do you want to live or stay for, for, let's say, longer period, how you can make sure that you still know that's the right pla place and uh, be sure, okay, I'm not going to move tomorrow to, to Asia. I should maybe start thinking about settling down. So, yeah, I think those are two questions in one, sorry. 
Yeah, no, that's absolutely fine. So preparing to move to a different country, there's definitely an element of, well, you need to have a saving spot because I'll give you an example. The first time I moved to the UK, I knew that there would be a work permit required. It's similar to the process they have uh, put in place now post-Brexit. Romania and Bulgaria were part of, of a group like that previously as well, like 10 years ago. And I knew this was required. I knew a company needed to sponsor this process, like get a legal team to submit the paperwork to HMRC and stuff. What I didn't realize is that it might take three months until the paperwork is processed and the and and everything was so archaic you couldn't really follow up or figure out where your case was. There was no portal that showed you <laughs> where you might be in the process or how long it might take. So being prepared that paperwork will take a long time wherever you move and obviously depends on your citizenship and the agreements between the two countries, that's very important. Um, being prepared financially for that too. The other thing is like moving to a different country, uh, rules might be different when you, in regards to your rights to rent a place or get property. The UK and the US are very similar, where if you don't have an address, you can't get a bank account. If you um, don't have a bank account, you can't rent a place. So it's very catch-22, like how does this work? And the best thing to do is, you know, figure out an international bank that has presence in both countries. Nowadays, it's even easier than that because things like TransferWise allow you to uh, establish a virtual card in it or bank account in every single country that you need to. So you can set up some of these things earlier. But I called my bank basically before I moved to the States and started a process to create a bank account about three months before moving. And you need to be aware of this because if you don't have a credit score in that specific country, it will be very hard to get an account started and therefore rent a place. And not all of the positions will offer relocation packages or support, or some of them might just give you the money, but be like, you need to handle everything yourself. Um, again, where you might live is also interesting. I didn't know anyone in New York when I moved and it really, you know, it wasn't the greatest experience because of this. It would have been helpful to have a friend there that could have advised me on what neighborhood to choose, blah, blah. And because of that, I thought, ah, living in Brooklyn is going to be so cool. I'm not going to do Manhattan like everyone else. And at age 27, I thought, you know what, like it's going to still be fine to live in a shared house. It was absolutely awful. And I had to switch location. <laughs> three months after and you know you learn from those experiences but it's ideal if you don't waste the money on having them to begin with and and doing your research if you know someone in that country is great to reach out and be like hey can you give me some advice what do you think about this and that or the other um and then if you already have an established presence in a particular country so say you have already invested in a private pension you have already invested in a house you have got in a car on a contract, which never makes any sense, but you were getting your car for the first time and you thought it was a good idea. You know, understanding your financial commitments, where you're leaving from, and factoring that in to your expenses when you're there. To give you an example, about 30% of my salary in New York used to go back to the UK to pay for my house and my car. You know, and just being able to balance that, understanding if the salary you're going to earn there will be enough to cover all of these different liabilities that you might have in different places 
is a good a good starting point. So that's the okay. Let's look at how we move from a country to another. Um, it another good question is: it worth paying for a relocation advisor or company? I think this is very relevant, especially in countries where you don't know anyone, you have no clue how the financial system works. It's hard to find the information online because not all the countries have so much advice that is very consumer friendly. If that is the situation, like if I would be moving to the Middle East tomorrow, I would totally pay for a relocation company myself because just setting up all of the paperwork, making sure it's right. You can't even if, you, if you're not familiar with the language and not even the letters look like anything you've ever seen before in your life, do get professional help and advice to do so. Um, now, the other part about it, like knowing where you're going to stay. So for me, something that attracted me to the UK a lot is not just the lifestyle that I have here, you know, the community. I'm part of like all of the international friends that I've been able to make throughout the years. They're, these are all very good reasons to stay. But financially as well, this is one of the very few countries where you're allowed to save quite a lot of money in an investment account yearly and not really have to pay any interest on uh, on the gains that you make on those shares or the, the investment funds you choose which is pretty special because this doesn't happen in many other places in the world. And long term, you know, I think it can allow me to do some really cool things in terms of my financial goals. But it was something that I learned for the years and I found what what matches my needs. Also, how much holiday we get in Europe, right? Like this was definitely a huge decision making point in regards to is it going to be the US long term or Europe long term? I feel here an employee has much more freedom and is not tied to that job 24 seven, where definitely the culture and what you get as an employee was very different in the United States. And another one, oh, this will be my final one, that is a huge decision making point and I didn't pay attention as a young person is healthcare. You need to really think, you know, you, when we're young, we rarely need to go to the hospital or do anything else. But as things progress in life or as you might decide that you might want some of your family members to come and live with you, like for me, my mother, for example, you know, you really need to think, is it going to be easy if they need to go to a doctor or if they have a, a chronic disease or if they are vulnerable in any sort of way? What's going to happen then? Is it going to be easy or if you lose your job, are you also going to lose your health care? And that's going to put you in a very uh, challenging position long term. So, you know, sit down, write them down, have a think, weigh, weigh the benefits, the expenses, the lifestyle, what makes you feel good in your heart. And that's going to help you decide where you want to be. Perfect. Uh, talking about the... Uh, uh, financial uh, security for the future, for the long term. Um, one thing that uh, we've identified in the previous conversation we had before this actual call was that statistically talking, women are more prone to save money in cash rather than invest compared to, to their male counterparts. However, when women do invest in um in companies, whatever, they tend to be more successful um, long-term than, than male. So, I, and knowing that as well, you are, um, you look at the market and you invest a little bit, what kind of um, advice, suggestions could you give to women overall that are looking to 
secure their future, uh, but that security not coming from saving cash, but actually making healthy and wise investments on the long term. Sure. I mean, this all goes back to, you know, the the education that we get to have through school and again, how families are more likely, especially in some of the cultures like the one that I grew up in, to think of males as the person that will take the responsibility for the family's finances. Therefore, they are very likely at an early age to um, share. Actually, I've seen studies where boys get more pocket money and a bit more education around how to spend it than, than girls would. And it's so bad, right? Um, also, any any knowledge you might have when you move from a country to another is useless because you need to start from scratch to understand. But I was reading actually that article from Forbes that was talking about like how women, when they do invest, end up actually being better investors. And it has to do a lot with the fact that women spend more time researching their investments than men do. And although they are not risk adverse, they, if you like, match the right level of risk with the right kind of investment. Um, from my perspective and my life experience and all of the different books I read, it's good to think of investments in three different categories. So saving in cash is actually still relevant and important for that emergency pot. And, you know, there are different perspectives on how much that should be. But I would say just having a good two months of your pay put in that to in case anything happens, your car might break down. I don't know, all sorts of nonsense, a pipe might burst where you live and if your landlord doesn't fix it or if it's your own home, you need to you need to actually take action. You might need to fly to a different country last minute because you have family there. There's all sorts of stuff like this going on. It's good to have that in cash because regardless of what's happening in the world, the any kind of financial market going down, up, whatever, you know that that money is there. But it's better not to have more because we have that stuff called inflation, which means that if I put £10 in an account today and I still have £10 next year, it's actually going to be worth about £8.50 because, you know, everything we pay for the things we need in our day to day life costs more. Therefore, the money doesn't have the same value. There's also another cool thing that national banks do called quantitative easing, which means they print more money to devalue the existing money, which means that if they borrow from someone, they can just print more money. We get penalized like our credit score goes bad. But as a country, it's fine. You can just spend as much money as you need. No worries. Not very fair. So there's that. Now, when you think about the investments themselves, it's like medium term goals and long term goals. There shouldn't be such a thing called short term goal with investment whatsoever. Medium term, you think five, 10 years, 15 years. So these are usually huge things like you're going to buy a house. You want to invest in an MBA. You want to get a second property at the seaside because why wouldn't you you know you want to have a kid and actually it turns out that the cost of daycare in a place like the uk is more than i pay for my mortgage today so the, these are things you need to consider and in that case it's absolutely fine to put the money in an investment portfolio again there are different platforms that do different things for you um so do your research i would say here in the UK, we have good resources like Money Savings Expert, for example, that will show you the different kind of investment funds and uh, investment platforms, how much are the fees for each, because 
even if it makes good money for you, it's not great if they take a huge percentage of that just to manage it, you know. And most importantly, are they actually protected by financial security from the government? So regardless of each country you're in, if you're investing in a platform with someone, an actual physical advisor, is your investment protected in case something goes bad? That's a good question to ask. Also, if in your country there isn't like a good online resource where you can compare the different platforms with fees and what they offer, and you go to an actual person, ask the question if they are incentivized to pitch particular kinds of products to you. So if you're going to the bank and you get financial advice from the bank, it's very likely they would not share with you everything that is available on the market because the bank pays them to only show you particular kinds of investments. So it's very important to be aware, to get non-biased and very objective advice if you do. And the long-term goal is your private pension and the sorts of investments you might be making from when, when you're old and shriveled and looking like a raisin. And it sucks thinking about that when you're 20 because, you know, you don't see the point. I've made some mistakes there as well where I, I didn't think that saving in my pension and, and doing the maximum contribution was worth it. But actually, you know, it is because the the more years go by, you start realizing that actually time goes by faster than, than you originally thought so. And again, it's all about like maybe not burdening your family at the time you're 60, 70, 80, 90. Or it's about putting in place and having an honest conversation with yourself. What does financial retirement mean for you? What age is that? Because it's it doesn't need to be like you're quitting your career and you're going to sit on your armchair looking at TV for the rest of your life. But it might mean I want to stop working in tech, um, starting my own bed and breakfast, living in a farmhouse and working on charity projects for the rest of my life. And to feel like if I do that, it doesn't compromise my lifestyle in any way. So those are like those long term things where you, where you need to, again, look at what your portfolio is invested in. How much are the management fees? Are you losing shitloads of money every year because they are not with the right platform? If you've worked in different companies, different countries, is it worth consolidating or should you take some financial advice to figure out the right strategy, which especially if you're in different countries, it might it might be worth doing so. I know that's a lot of Thanks, Alex. <laughs> uh, I think it's a perfect. So, sorry, I, I think it's it's useful. I was actually taking notes to remind myself after what should I do, because I think it's a good, you know, um, like um, tips and tricks where, where, where to actually look for and what to consider, because when starting to think about these things, um, you don't really know where to start, what to consider and how to get going. And um, I have a question which is related to, uh, it goes maybe a bit deeper into what you already mentioned, mm -hmm. investing itself. We know that you are very passionate about investing. We know that you know your numbers, you know what are good places where it might be a good uh, good way to, to make money. So thinking about the stock market particularly, it's not super easy to know, like, I'm going to go there and invest in this or that. Mm -hmm. And it's not easy also to just start or know where to start. So can you tell us more about if I want to do investing today in the stock market, where should I go and maybe what should be my top of mind before I do anything with my money? Uh, definitely top of mind needs to be research. So no one should kind of think, oh, I'm just going to Google on the Internet like I want to invest in shares. 
and put like click on the first link, put the money in there because it's also likely to be a scam, unfortunately, nowadays. And this is why, you know, having these objective platforms where there are nowadays, you know, there's a huge fintech market and, and finfluencing around bloggers and people who invest the time in doing the research in your specific country on the financial market. Look out for those people. If you spend your time on Instagram and stuff like that, um, look, Ladies Finance Club, for example, is a good one. Uh, there's another lady uh, called My Frugal Year, which talked about all um, in terms of hey, I had a huge pot of debt, I made some shitty decisions for all my life and I needed to get back to a good place. And she talks about the steps that she took to get there. So, you know, look out for, for those kinds of influencers. There are, again, different books and I have one there um, somewhere up called How to Own the World by a gentleman called Andrew Craig. Now, I like that because it's really specific to the UK market and it talks about the different UK investment uh, vehicles because, you know, shares is just one of them. But there are funds, there is gold, there is silver, there's cryptocurrencies, there's all sorts of things. There are startups that you can invest in to get some tax gains. There's all sorts of options to choose from. And it's important to educate yourself about what they are because school, unfortunately, has failed us from that perspective. And again, think about your level of risk. Your level of risk is easy to calculate. You're 23, don't have any children, no need to settle down, no need to buy a house anytime soon. Go and risk it all at the end of the day, but do so with your genuine disposable income, not what you need to pay on rent bills and to maintain yourself alive. You know, If you want to go and try crypto, do it, but don't, again, don't put your life savings into cryptocurrency because although some people might have made billions from it, it's not ideal to also lose it all if something goes bad. So these are like, find the resources, whether it's online, a blog, a website that centralizes all of that education, whether it's, you know, these fintech influencers where you can look online and again, measure their credibility, not the sort of people that say, hey, I'm going to make you rich tomorrow, join my pyramid scheme, is actually the ones that generally take the information available in the country and make it easier to digest for you, the individual. So say people that look at the British financial budget for the year, which you would fall asleep because it's four hours of like reading and shit that doesn't concern you all the time. But, you know, there are people that take that information and extract the bytes that actually matter for you, the individual. Those, those are good. It's a good way to figure out which ones you should look at. The books as well, find the one again for your country. I mentioned the Think and Grow Rich, but there are different ones. And again, each financial market will have its own authors. It's, do research on, on Kindle. It helps with identifying what, what is right. Um, I also have subscriptions to Financial Times um, and The Economist, the podcasts. I also like the Money Week magazine. I get that every single week because I, I actually really enjoyed the reading and it's very informational. So once you have all of this knowledge, it's just important to select the right vehicle or platform to make the investments. Again, look at platforms that have quite low fees where you are allowed to invest in whatever um, system your country has to protect your investments from tax. So always look out for if I make money on top of Microsoft shares, what's the best way for me not to have to pay tax on those gains? 
you know, each country's rules and tax regulations are different. So it's very important to understand that and research it. And always, always make sure you have financial protection. So the, any, any platform you use, and this is where crypto falls short, and that's why there's a big red flag on top of it. You know, that is not protected financially by any law in any country. And it's one of the reasons why it's so volatile and it doesn't obey any any of the logic or the rules of the financial markets. So if you are investing in something, just make sure it is a valid investment that is protected by by financial regulators in your country. Thanks a lot. I think uh, you already answered my question, but I wanted still to get it like straight. I was about to ask, uh, you You mentioned stock market, you mentioned crypto differences and pretty much everything that you shared regarding research and making sure we know what is protected and how and what are the fees and tools applies to both. And the question would be, would you prefer like stock market versus crypto or crypto market? But I think you already said, but yeah, go ahead. (laughs) Like I mentioned previously, crypto can be quite exhilarating because it's all fairly new and many people have managed to make quite wild gains from it, right? But at the same time, if you sit and look, say, why wouldn't you pick if especially the industry that you work in for us is tech, right? You have quite a lot of education of what technology is, how it's sold, how it's packaged, what markets we're targeting and stuff like that. Even if you look at the Microsoft shares in the last four years and the growth that they have managed to achieve, you know, that's you need to kind of have a think like, is would this be a good case scenario? And can I do some research in my own industry to perhaps find a fund with more tech companies in it? So to balance the risk a little bit, or are there the ones that I can generally identify where I think if I invest money and I look at the analyst research uh, from different financial organizations, I feel quite confident that they are they are going to grow in a particular way. Crypto, I know any anything from like fund managers that have made the choice to take 600 million, put it in Bitcoin and made 1.1 billion in profit and extracted the profits at market high, which again, you can't, you can only guess, you can't know for sure, versus um, acquaintances that I have, which use platforms like Revolut to invest in different cryptocurrencies have managed to double their money, took their initial investment out, and now everything that is there, you know what, it can do whatever it will, whether it grows or it goes down, because their initial money that they've allocated for for that wild card is out. So I think for me, shares will always be my first choice, especially with my serious investments where I know I'm saving for my wedding or my, my next house and stuff like that. But I have... Um, you know, used crypto to buy some of the things that are not essential items might be a bit pricey and I wouldn't have justified spending the amounts of money unless it was coming from one of these wildcard sources where I knew I haven't spent months investing to to get to that goal. Fair enough. Thank you. That's so interesting. Thank you. Sorry, Nina. Do you have any uh, other thing to, to add? No, no, I really like the approach and what is for one, what is for another. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. I found this, yeah this conversation has been so useful and hopefully uh, whoever listens to us will uh, gather a lot of insights and a lot of tips and maybe change a little bit the mindset towards uh, career, career growth, and even how to be uh, 
healthy economically speaking we are reaching the end of our conversation um but before we finish the the, the discussion i just wanted to ask you what three key values that you see uh that are important and key to succeed any anywhere in any company any any country at any moment in time hmm. Free. Okay, so the first one is definitely passion and curiosity, because if you don't like what you're doing and you're not genuinely curious to learn more or do, you know, deepen your knowledge in particular areas, it's going to be very, very challenging for you to do that every day and get any joy out of it. And when you're not happy about something, you're not going to be a top performer, regardless of what it is. You know, sometimes even when you know, you want to go to the gym, you know, the right thing for your body is to go to the gym, but you just feel shitty that day. And when you are there, it's like, oh, it, it's a pain, right? You're not, you're not really feeling the end or things you should be feeling. It's the same with any other kind of task. If, if you're not passionate about it, generally, it's not going to be great. The second one for me would be integrity. Again, if you're not doing something with honesty, and you might have to, you know, like bend the truth in any way or or cheat the system to get ahead. You're always going to be stressed about it for the rest of your life. It's going to be in your mind at 3 a.m. when you can't sleep and stuff like that. So don't don't think that you need to be unfair in any way or uh, dishonest to to get ahead in life because it's not true. And the third one, I think, is definitely network and it goes both ways so it's not just about what you as an individual can get out of other people and the relationships you build it's what can you give back as well and for me especially the more you advance your career and become more senior in a company in a particular job whatever what are you doing to actually help other people get there you know how are you building up the, the you know the women in technology of the future in my case like how how have you facilitated some of their career moves or their opportunities to make progress of any kind because if if you're not doing that there's no way this world is going to change and be a, a fairer more inclusive place like we want it to be in the future so yeah those are free <laughs> Thanks a lot, uh, Alex. Before uh, Carolina like say her last thoughts, I just wanted to thank you for this amazing conversation. I think we are ready to uh, get our six-figure salary or double it up. We're already there. We are ready to break down the goals and really chase them with 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 passion and everything. And we are ready to be like that woman that will fight for herself, go and get stuff that she deserves. So thank you so much for inspiring us for today. Yeah, thank you so much, Alex, for your time and patience and for explaining all of this. It has been really a real pleasure. It's very important for me to to be able to do this, and I'm happy I get to to talk from you know some years of experience, like mistakes, but but also good learnings and stuff. And I'm here if you or or the wider community want to chat more about this i know that there are always loads of follow-up questions so feel free to reach out to me or you know on instagram i'm woman versus tech there so yeah i'm i'm here for people's questions and for help thank you so much so i'll speak to you soon and um yeah thank you thank Bye. you Alex.
Bye. Bye.